Almighty God, we pray that you might take these gifts that have been given tonight and those given through the week, that you might take our lives and that you might use them for your fame and your renown, that many more around this world might know Jesus Christ as Saviour. We ask by your spirit now you'd be at work in our hearts as we come to your word. Would you soften them where they are hard? And would you plant this word deep down in them that we might go on into the week ahead as those who live our lives to bring you glory, as those who live our lives to show those around us the beautiful salvation that you have won for us in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray for his glory. Amen. Amen. Well, please do uh, take a seat and uh, please keep your Bibles open at Exodus chapter 1. Shrek has three. Toy Story also has three for now. Jurassic Park has five. Mission Impossible has six with a seventh on the way. Rocky has eight. And The Fast and the Furious has ten. There is no question that when it comes to movies, sequels are a big deal. And we find ourselves this evening at the start of a sequel. You see, Exodus may only be the second book in the Bible, but it is very obviously written as the sequel to the first. At the end of the book of Genesis, you can imagine the camera zooming out to give a a wide-angled view of Jacob's extended family, his 12 sons and, and their families in their new home, the land of Egypt. And then the book of Exodus begins by zooming back in on the very same family. In the first few verses of the book, we get them all listed. There can be no doubt that this is the next episode in the same story. And that's probably how we're best to view this, not as a a standalone sequel, but rather as the next installment in an epic saga. So think more Lord of the Rings or Star Wars rather than Home Alone 3. Because although the verses that we're about to read make it very clear that the the whole cast for this second blockbuster will be different, the themes and the overarching storyline very much carry on from the first. Just see if you can pick that up as I read again from verse 6 of chapter 1. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Well, I wonder, did you hear it? I have to say, it's not very subtle. The Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly. They increased in numbers. They became so numerous, and the land was filled with them. Does that remind you of anything? Way, way back at the very start of this epic tale, our creator God had given his newly created humanity a mission, a role. 
God blessed them, we're told in, in Genesis 1:28. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Do you see? Exodus may have a, a very different cast to Genesis, but they are simply playing their part in the ongoing story. These ancient Israelites in the land of Egypt, well, they were now the means by which God's plans for all humanity will be worked out. They are the inheritors of the mission that we saw first unfolding in the pages of Genesis. Before we get too excited, you can almost hear the menacing, sinister music in the background as the next member of our cast makes his appearance. Verse 8. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them. Or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and lead the, leave the country. You see, all the way through this story so far, like every good narrative, there has been not only a mission, but also a villain. One who will stand in the way of what is to be achieved. One who will oppose those who uh, strive to achieve it. Ever since the third chapter of, of Genesis, God's good plans and designs for his creation have been opposed and rejected by Satan and by his human representatives. As we begin the book of Exodus, the people of God may have their next generation, but so, do, so too do the enemies of God, ready to threaten and attack God's people and God's purposes. And in our, our rapid scene-setting opening, it's not long before we see that this particular villain is especially cruel. Verse 11. So the Egyptians put slave masters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. People of God are, are growing, but Pharaoh is determined to contain them. He enslaves and, and subjects them to backbreaking work, abusing and oppressing them. Very quickly, this book has, has taken a dark turn. And we're left wondering just what sort of story it is that we're letting ourselves in for. But you know, for, for the real fans of the first installment, for those who know Genesis well, 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 even these grim verses here in Exodus bring cause for hope. How? Well, because in them, I think we're supposed to hear the echoes of a promise. A promise made by the living God to his chosen people. A promise made to Abraham in Genesis 15. 
where we read these words. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and ill-treated there. You see, this act of brutality by Pharaoh, well, well, it wasn't off script, anything but. It was, in fact, exactly what the Lord had said would happen. Even as his people are subjected to forced labor in a foreign land, still the sovereign Lord is just that, sovereign and Lord. But there's even more than that, because in Genesis 15, God continues Your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and ill-treated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterwards, they will come out with great possessions. And so do you see, right at the beginning of of this book, of Exodus, we're, we're supposed to be thinking back to the previous book, Genesis. Because that promise to to deliver God's people from slavery, that is what the book of, of Exodus is all about. That promise hangs over the whole piece as as the great question of this episode of the unfolding drama of Scripture. Just how is God going to do it? How will he rescue his people from such a powerful enemy? How will he restore them so that they might go on fulfilling the mission that he has for them? That's our intro. And over the rest of our our passage this evening, what we'll see essentially is is character development. We'll hear a little more of, of Pharaoh We'll see something more of God's people, the ancient Israelites. And we'll be introduced to our leading actor. But most of all, and this goes for the whole book, most of all, we will see something of who our God is. You see, this is a book about identity. The identity of God's people, sure, of his chosen saviour, you bet. But most of all, most of all, this is a book about the identity of our God. As we read through this gripping tale over the next term, we will see more and more of who our God is, of his character, of his ways in this world, of his heart for his people. For centuries to come, if if you'd have asked an ancient Israelite which God they worshipped, they would have pointed you to the events recorded in this book. Which God do we serve? Oh, well, we worship the God of the Exodus. Friends, the events that are about to unfold will reveal who our God is. And in the process, they will also shape who we, his people, are. So let's get back to the action. Verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, 
If you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? Midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile. But let every girl live. Well, clearly, slavery had not achieved for Pharaoh what he'd hoped it would. He still lived in fear of an ancient Israelite rebellion, an uprising that that might strip him of his power. And so he resorts instead to genocide. He orders every baby boy born to a Hebrew to be killed. This maniac is intent on wiping out the people of God. And you know, what's curious about this whole episode is that the monstrous tyrant who gives this decree seems not really to be the focus of the narrative. Do you know that to this day, we, we still don't know the name of this pharaoh? There's a few possible candidates, but no one's quite sure. But that's not true as Shifra and Pua, is it? Generation after generation, as they have read the scriptures, have come to know of these two courageous women. Women who who show us a little of what it means to be a follower of the living God. Now, you can debate for hours, if you like, about whether or not they were right to lie to Pharaoh, but that's not really the point. The behavior of, of Shifra and Pua establishes an important principle. These people are first and foremost God's people. He is their master and ruler. He is the one whom they obey. The power of Pharaoh is nothing compared to the power of the God of the Israelites. And that's why these two women are are honoured in these verses, because they feared God rather than Pharaoh. He may have been the most powerful man in that particular corner of the ancient world, but even Pharaoh, in all his might and majesty, is no match for the God of the Israelites. He's not even worthy of a name. But Shifra and Pua, They will go down in history as women of faith who valued and and protected life even in the face of fearsome opposition. Because you see, their actions not only saved the lives of many little boys, but also made a way for the leading actor in our drama to make his entrance. Let's read on chapter 2 and verse 1. 
Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. And she placed the child in it and put him among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. And Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and, and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she said. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Well, there is a, a certain irony here. I wonder if you noticed it. Back in chapter 1, verse 22, it's evident that, that Pharaoh thought it impossible for a woman to threaten his position and power. Little girls, they were allowed to live. And yet it is the actions of five women, Shifra, Pua, Moses' mother and his sister, and even Pharaoh's own daughter, that secure the safety and future of Moses, God's chosen instrument for the rest of the book. You see, even at this early stage of his self-revelation, the living God has made it clear that he is for the weak and the humble, the marginalized and the downcast. It is the proud and the arrogant that he opposes. And we must recognize, too, that, that what we have here is our introduction to the man who will be front and center of pretty much everything that will happen in the chapters to come. This is, if you like, the origin story of our main character. And right from the beginning, his life is marked by, by intrigue and drama. Born in the middle of an attempted genocide, he is indeed thrown into the Nile, as Pharaoh ordered. But God, in his wisdom and sovereignty, is at work behind the scenes to bend even Pharaoh's despotic decrees to his own purposes. God has promised to rescue his people. And so he will raise up their rescuer. And even Pharaoh will be powerless to stop him. But these early days of Moses' life also set up for us a, a tension that will crackle throughout the next few chapters. The tension between Moses' identity as the spared son of a Hebrew slave and his identity as the favoured foundling of Pharaoh's daughter. Even his name speaks of that tension. You see, our, our footnote here tells us that Moses sounds like the Hebrew for draw out. 
but it also sounds like the ancient Egyptian word for born of or son of. Moser was frequently used in the names of pharaohs to identify them as the sons of God. Think Ramesses or Ra-Moses, son of the great Egyptian god Ra. As Pharaoh's daughter calls him Moses, so she claims this baby as her own. So we have to be asking, even at this early stage, who will this child become? Egyptian or Israelite? Oppressor or or liberator? Worshipper of the pantheon of Egypt or faithful follower of the only true and living God? Whose son will he be? And that tension is only heightened by the events that follow. Now, all the movies make much of the the killing of the Egyptian slave master, not least because it's pretty much all we know of Moses' early life. He was probably about 40 when the incident happened, and and just notice how much our narrator is at pains to draw out the the Hebrew-Egyptian tension that existed within Moses. Verse 11, he, he went to where his own people were and saw one of his own people being beaten. Moses himself even challenges the the Israelite man the next day uh, to consider how he treats his fellow Hebrew. The whole episode speaks of of Moses' desire to prove himself a faithful Hebrew, a man who, who counts himself one of the people of ancient Israel, despite his Egyptian upbringing. So how how crushed he must have been then when he discovers that not only is he now facing execution as a murderer by the Egyptians, but also that he has been rejected as a leader by the Israelites. He flees to the wilderness, a, a fugitive and an exile. Even as he arrives in Midian, he's announced as an Egyptian Well, he will stay there for another 40 years, welcomed by Raul, given a job and a wife, establishing a family, and yet still seemingly haunted by his identity. Verse 22, Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. Here is a man who embodies the experience of God's people. Foreigners in a foreign land. Numerous, yes, but oppressed and hurting and far from home. And this is only our first glimpse of the the complex character that Moses will become. So often, so, so passionate in his defense of justice and his zeal for righteousness, and yet so prone to a rash response or a foolish outburst. And you know, if we come away from this account not quite sure what to make of him, then I think that's okay. 
Because yes, the book of Exodus will show us much about Moses, about who he is and and what he's like. But ultimately, Moses is not the hero of the book. Moses is the instrument that the living God, the God of, of ancient Israel, will use to bring about his purposes. Verse 23. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help, because of their slavery, went up to God. God heard their groaning. And he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. In the midst of the terrible suffering of the Hebrew people, amongst the maniacal scheming of a a paranoid dictator, in all the complexity and, and the messiness of one Israelite Egyptian fugitive, in all of that, over and and above, in front and behind, is the God of this universe. What kind of God is he? Well, he's the kind of God who hears the groaning of his people. The kind of God who remembers his promises. The kind of God who looks at of what he sees on this earth and who acts. Acts in history to establish his name and his rule, to gather his people and to achieve his purposes. And you know, I think that's the point for us today. Throughout this book, we will see much of who our God is of his character and and his ways in this world. Because, friends, this God is still our God. The God of the Exodus is the God of our age too. And he is still a God who, who loves the weak and the poor and the needy. Still a God who, who calls his people to fear him and, and to do what's right. He is still a God who comes to the rescue of his people. See, we've made a start this evening on on the second episode of this grand narrative. But friends, this is history. This story will continue on for for millennia after Pharaoh and, and Moses and the ancient Israelites. And sometime later, many centuries later, another baby would be born. Born under the shadow of another murderous king. Another baby destined forever to to carry a dual identity. Another baby born to lead God's people to freedom. Born to rescue those enslaved by a ruthless and merciless master. Only that baby, Jesus of Nazareth, 
would rescue on a scale that even Moses could only dream of. He would rescue forever, for good, for all who trust in him. And so as we read Exodus, we must see it for what it is. Yes, the sequel to Genesis, the the next chapter in God's unfolding plan, but also the trailer for the main feature, the teaser for what is to come. God, in his kindness, acted then to bring his people relief. But in these last days, that same God has acted decisively in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, to bring full and lasting salvation, not only from earthly oppression and suffering, but also from the deeper slavery that we all know in our hearts our slavery to sin. In Jesus Christ, the greater Moses, only in Jesus Christ can we know freedom forever. Friends, this is a a saga on an epic scale. It will play out over thousands of years. It is playing out still today. Behind it all is the great hero of the piece, principal actor and director, the God of the Exodus, the God of of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who hears, the God who remembers, the God who looks and who acts. Moses' God the Israelites' God, and our great God. Let's enjoy getting to know him as we read through Exodus. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you that you are the same God yesterday, today, and forever. That still today you are the God of the Exodus. The God who hears the cries of your people, who remembers your promises, who looks on their plight and who acts to save them. Lord, we thank you for this this wonderful picture of that in the events of the Exodus. We thank you that even as they played out in history, so they were pointing us towards that greater salvation. And so we thank you most of all tonight for our Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we might know freedom in all its fullness. So, Father, we pray in your kindness in the coming days as we spend time in your word, as we live our lives in your presence, that by your spirit you might make yourself known to us, that we might rejoice to know that this is our God, the one who hears and remembers, who looks and acts 
the one who saves. Amen.